Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Apocalypse, finally we're all outside playing again. Let's blow out the candles and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. You may come for the education, but you'll stay for the excellent cafeteria food at Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm confused where I am. <laughs> I like this new intro. This is nice. I hope so, because we got them for a while. <laughs> okay, good. I'll pay for those in batches. Nice. Well, you know, we sound like we know what we're talking yeah. about now, at least. A sense yeah. of elegance. Yeah. No, I'm Todd, and thank you guys for joining us. This is the pestle where we like to, I don't know, dissect, diagnose, and kind of dive into any alliterative means of picking apart a movie. In this case, today we're going to be doing Spotlight. And man, I kind of went into this really wanting to pull apart what makes, because I love a good journalism movie. And I was trying to find out what do I, why, what makes a journalism movie great. And I just didn't have the time. I ended up booking some gigs. And so I didn't, wasn't able to really well, we'll figure it pull out it apart. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Together, yeah. our powers combined. So if you guys haven't seen Spotlight, pause this, go watch it, because if you're not up to current standards of, of media, then you know you don't know what's going on. Uh, but this is based on a true story, so uh, you know, go watch some news or something and, and come back to us. But what are we, we going to talk about? We'll talk about a lot of things we're going to yeah. discuss. I have a heavy dive into the cinematography uh, specifically yeah. composing your frame with a purpose. I feel like so many people just kind of frame things to look good, which is fine. I mean, there's certainly a place to that, place for that. But when you're really telling a, a compelling story, the more you can make your frame speak to the story, the better. And even if it's more symbolic, so, so much better. We'll talk about journalism stories and so much more. Yeah. So a quick synopsis of the film based on a true story of how the Boston Globe uncovered the massive scandal of child molestation and cover up within the Catholic archdiocese, shaking the entire Catholic church to its core. It's directed by Tom McCarthy, written by Josh Singer and Tom McCarthy, starring Mark Ruffalo as Mike Resendez, Michael Keaton as Robbie Robinson, uh, Rachel McAdams as Sasha Pfeiffer, uh, Liv Schreiber as Marty, John Slatter as Ben Bradley, Stanley Tucci as Mitch Garabedian, which is the greatest name ever really in the history of things, uh, and Billy Kudrup as Eric McLeish. If there were 90 of these bastards, people would know. Maybe they do. And no one said a thing? Could Germans. I don't think that's a comparison you want to make publicly. McLeish knew. He just didn't say anything. That's 13 priests. There's a big difference between 13 and 90. Where's this guy's sight getting his numbers? Well, he's been, he's been studying it for 30 years. He is a trained psychotherapist. Okay, but we need something more than a metric from some hippie ex-priest who's shacking up with a nun. Okay, so we'll track down more victims. We'll get more priests. Then, then we, could, um, we could check them against the directories. That's a shitload of victims. We'll get there. How long is it going to take? Too long. Wait, the meeting's over? Yeah. For now, I love that the meeting's over. Yeah, <laughs> he just drops it. And that's one of the things I really love about this is the Boston attitude that kind of seeps into the film in so many ways. And I'll get into that a little bit more lately. But uh, 
what was your take on it? Like walking away from it recently, I don't know the first time you saw it, but you grew up in the Catholic church. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up Catholic, born, raised, and according to my mom, I still am. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. One of those. Uh, and it's funny because, uh, they even mention in this film, you know, there's a whole moment where, uh, the, I forgot the guy's name, but the guy that had sent them all that. Oh, that Gilman. I Gilman. Think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, or asked, s- he asked if they were Catholic. Saviano. Saviano. And they, they were all Catholic in the room, mm. but none of them s- still practicing. There's a, there's some kind of reason for that. And but none of the, none of them were abused, but they're not practicing. So <clears throat> I don't know if that speaks to, uh, cause for a long time there's been this, this, uh, I, I don't, I wouldn't call it a fear, but this knowledge in the Catholic church that, that like this generation is kind of going away from that a little bit, not just Catholicism, but just Christianity or religion in general, Mm -hmm. you know, anyway, not to get off topic. I did grow up Catholic. I was an altar boy. Nothing happened. I was one of the lucky ones, apparently, (laughs) Apparently. which was a, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. When uh, Michael Keaton is sitting in that room with those three guys at his alma mater at, what was it? Boston college. Yeah. 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 uh, At his alma mater and asked each of, you know, that guy some high school. Yeah. it was a college. Really? Yeah. 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 I thought it was, Oh my God. Yeah. Anyway. And saying the, this gentleman he was talking to had played football. He said, you know, uh, I played, what did he say he played? He played something. He played football. And that other guy was like, he played. Yeah. Something. Well, this, baseball. this other, this other guy played hockey just so happened that father. So-and-so coached hockey. I guess we got lucky unbelievable. I will say to answer your question long windedly, the first time I saw it, I wasn't blown away. I was like, okay, this is an important story that needed to be told. So I'm going to, I'm going to like take it on face value that, you know, it was, it it just didn't hit me when I watched it yesterday. It absolutely hit me. It was better the second time. I think partially because there's a lot of names. Yeah. There's a lot of people at play here. They will revisit a person or a name, you know, 15, 10, 15 minutes later, but it's, it's so quick. They'll say McLeish and move on in the middle of a sentence and move on. And you, you don't relate the face to the McLeish and you're just lost. And I don't think that's bad writing. Let me get that straight. I think it's brilliant writing because you have to pay attention. And if you, if you pay attention and you catch all the names and you put the faces with the names in your head, all of a sudden it's almost like you're in the room with them it made me feel the second time like like i was having to do work like they were having to do work but on but paying attention to the dialogue and to where they're going and to what's being said and and mark ruffalo will say i'm going to go meet so and so or i'm going to do this or or um michael keaton would direct um rachel mcadams to go talk to you know one of these other guys or one of these priests and you're just trying to keep up you know? And so I found myself, it was funny. I found myself at the end of it thinking, man, I wonder if I could go to journalism school and do this. This is the coolest thing ever. You know, I just loved, loved, loved it. It was, I was in that world the entire time. I was never taken out. The performances were, uh, I mean, transcendent. I didn't, I never, I mean, I'm a Rachel McAdams fan, you know, I don't think she's like 
everything, but I think I'm a fan. I do. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> but I, I was blown away by her in this film, by everyone, really. It was, I can totally see the, now watching it a second time, mm-hmm. can totally see the, the film of the year. On yeah. This one. Yeah. Same. I mean, walking out of this one, I was like, I think that was probably my favorite journalism movie I've ever seen. And I had to sit on it for like a week. And then I talked to our buddy Dave and I was like, dude, I, did you see spotlight? I think that was my favorite ever. And he was like, yeah, same here actually. And that year I was actually rooting for room to win best picture. But when this mm-hmm. one, I was like, you know what? Nope. I'm okay with that. No, I'm yeah. 100% okay with that. Yeah. And yeah, it, it just, the performances are amazing. Like every time one of those guys is listening and interviewing, uh, almost interrogating, you know, people, their eye, especially Rachel McAdams, whenever she's playing this out and Sasha is interviewing a subject, she's not blinking. She's got yes. her eye on you and she's going to get to the truth yeah. come hell or high water. And Mark Ruffalo playing Mike Resendez. God, he crushed it. Oh, my God. When he was interviewing um, his survivor Oh yes, with with Garbedian. Yeah, Patrick. Yes, he was so locked in to him, just like Rachel always was, and I noticed that for both of them. And that's the kind of thing, like in real life, if I were to be doing that, and I were to be in a room with someone, and I were to be asking him these terribly probing questions, I would be so I would be so present and locked, just like that, like locked on them. And I also felt like. It was it was written really well, but the reason why it was acted really well is because it was very conversational. You know, there were ums and uhs and and stutters, and you know, they'd start a a, a line, but then they'd go back and repeat a couple words. Like it was like totally, you know, like normally. Yeah, I spoken. wonder how some of that played out, like from the script to the screen. Uh, yeah, I think there had to be some ad libs. There's this great moment. Well, it, I call it great. Tell to me, me, it was great. I might. I might. I it was might at the it. baseball game. And one of the guys, Matt Carroll, he's played by Brian Darcy James. Matt Carroll gets up and he's like, I'm going to, speaking of that, I'm going to go get a beer. Do you want anything? No. Give me a hot dog. That is exactly when the moment I was thinking of. My God. That's awesome. That's crazy. I I literally in that moment wondered out loud in my brain, I wonder, that couldn't have been in the script. I I bet he just threw that in there. It's so human. It's Uh such a human thing because I've long noticed that. And sometimes someone might ask me to repeat something and I, and I don't, I give it like two or three seconds because people had this knee jerk reaction of you say something they say, what? And they actually I'm heard totally you. guilty of that. In yeah. My yeah, life. Yeah. My life would tell <laughs> like every, I, a lot of people do that. And I won't say, I won't repeat myself yet. I'll, I'll give it a few seconds. And then if they say what again, I'll, I'll repeat myself. But normally they'll just say what? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got it. You know, I got your email. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. respond to you. Like it's such a natural thing. And it, there's these little human elements that they constantly, to your point, are inserting all throughout the film. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> it's great. But yeah, I'm a huge Rachel McAdams fan, mm-hmm. but everyone in here, Stanley Tucci playing Garabedian is just wearing his, he just sinks into the role. Even Michael Keaton uh, and Liv Schreiber playing Marty Baron, the editor, uh, Schreiber has just constantly got his nose in the books. He he never feels like he's pressing. He's he's playing this editor who sees he's the coach. He sees the playing field. He's not getting emotional about the play calls. Yeah. 
he's like, okay, well, that one didn't work. Our mind is somewhere bigger. Yeah, we got a touchdown, or yeah, we got the first down, but our mind is somewhere else. We're thinking bigger picture. We're thinking playoffs. We're thinking championship. Mm-hmm. We're not thinking this game. And he's seeing so much clearer, and Michael Keaton kind of being the, the man on the ground is picking it up bit by bit, and he finally gets on the same page, and they're all going through this phase of trying to get to know their new editor because they all have their eyes on yeah, well, this piece is going to be the one for us. Spotlight picks our own thing. And Keaton is kind of him and both John Slattery, Ben Bradley and Robbie Robinson are both playing into it so perfectly of, do we trust this guy? Do we not? And I was just eating up every ounce of it because they, they're all newsmen. Mm-hmm. They're all a care about the story. And we want to get this right. And at the same time, there's this distance that they put on themselves between themselves and the story. And we'll get to, you know, a great soundbite here in a little bit that goes right into the heart of that very idea. Uh, I mean, even that first one, Keaton's, you can't see it in the audio, obviously, but Keaton's chewing on He's like, yep, no, you're right. I'm done with this conversation. (laughs) And, you know, Ben Bradley's like, what, was that it? (laughs) He's like, yep, we're on to the next. And I, I like how they introduced the new editor with him sitting down with Michael Keaton at dinner and basically probing him. Like, what do you do? How long does that take? And so the first the first kind of feeling you get of him is that, oh, he's going to come in and try to trim fat. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and so and you can see it in Keaton's face. All of us. And it's so funny because not even really in the in the script does he pull back so much as like just in his reaction and how he delivers the line is a little slower then when he first starts, he starts talking, he's telling mm. him answers, and then he starts telling him a little bit slower to kind of make, do you notice, That's did you notice a great, that? No, I didn't. It's like, it's totally how I would act because like, this is the kind of guy who he's asking these questions. He already knows the answers, but he, cause that's the reason he has the, the editor job, right? He's yeah. like the top dog. He already knows these answers. He just wants to hear them from Keaton's character. So he's asking these and Keaton knows he knows the answers. So, but he has to answer him anyway because he's his boss. So how I would act is I would start giving the answers and then he'd ask me a little bit more difficult questions and I'd give him the answers that I know he already has, but questionably a little bit, like hold, trying to hold back a little bit, but you can't because you got to give them to him is brilliant, brilliant delivery. Great note. Yeah. Man, that's so good. I'm going to go rewatch that scene yeah. because I always think about how he's also... It's a great intro for one, as an audience getting familiar with Boston and journalism. It's it's always a really good idea for a writer to introduce a new character into the story as kind of this cheap way to have exposition, mm-hmm. introduce people and their particulars, their qualities. And because we're looking at the newsroom through the eyes of Marty Baron, now we get he gets to ask those questions. And we, as the audience, get to find out those answers, too. And so it's they, it's so effortless here, though, because it is a power position. And I love what you're saying. Like, there's this ebb and flow that initially, because Robbie sits down. And he sees he's reading a book about Boston, uh, about whatever, the Curse of the Bambino. And he sees that, and he's like, oh, yeah, this guy gets it. And he's just automatically friendly, only to find out. No, he's, he's doing his homework. Right. <laughs> this is only homework. Right. Right. And now he comes shortly after to realize, oh, he's still doing homework, but now he's doing it through me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it's just, it's also brilliant because then, because you're on defense for Robbie, mm-hmm. right? But then you find out, no, this guy, 
is legit and he's going to push Robbie, but in the right direction, but he doesn't even really push him. He just kind of leads him like you'd lead a horse to water in that, in the meeting where he says, well, a spotlight normally picks their own. Well, would you consider this <laughs> brilliant? You know, and I, who knows if that's the way it went down, yeah, yeah. but the way that it's written is brilliant. Yeah. But if you're going to go back to the, like the coach persona, uh, yeah. that's what you want out of a coach is someone who's not going to just beat on you the whole time. It's like, he's trying to understand you and he's going to get you on his team and he's yeah. going to also try to be on yours. And yeah, you're right. You're, we're introduced ourselves to these characters and especially, uh, Marty, the editor, and you're just automatically asking those questions. Is he going to start letting people go? I don't want to see, you know, all these amazing actors go. Mm-hmm. And when in reality he is getting to understand his team and his resources and how can he best serve, you know, the community ultimately. And can I also say, I mean, we could talk about this for all day, so we'll get on your cinematography here in just a second. But <laughs> no one of the things that I loved about this, the way that they structured this is that they told just one story, Right. It wasn't a story of like this team trying to get along or like like fighting for their jobs. I, I never once was thinking, oh, there's this other aspect of these two don't get along or or you know they better perform or else they're going to lose their job. There was no pressure of that. The pressure was the story. The pressure was get the story right, the right story right, and that was the only thing that it focused on. I didn't I didn't feel as a viewer pressure in any other way than to follow the dialogue and to follow the story as written. There there wasn't, I mean, you know, they introduced other characters like Sasha's husband at one point, you know, just va- vaguely like small things. And like, you know, you you learned that, that Mark Ruffalo's character was divorced and, and stuff, like, you know, all these little things, but they were just, you know, to build up each character. They mm-hmm. weren't to separate the, the team. And in fact, they, they inter- inserted scenes that weren't necessarily needed as a film goes, but to prop up the team as a team. Like when Mark goes to Sasha's house and has that conversation, like that's not needed. It's, I mean, it, it, it does support and it does support the story, but, but it's if not you furthering it, the story. No, if you took it out, it's not furthering the story. What it is, is it's uh, reinforcing their relationship as a team, you know? And, you know, seeing them calling each other late at night and early in the morning and like catching up. It's just you you like want to be on that team. Yeah. You know, anyway. Dude, I love let's, that. That's let's so good. Give me your cinematography. It's right. a two hour episode, which it very well might be. So. <laughs> so, yeah, I have a crazy amount of notes on the cinematography, but I'll fly through them. OK, now Wes is going to be talking for 20 minutes <laughs> yeah. and all. So don't fall asleep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Try to follow along. So, yeah, let's dive into the cinematography because they have such a very consistent visual style here. There's a lot of locked off shots. And even even when they're on a tripod and it, if they don't lock it off, which is to say uh, you're on sticks, you're on a tripod. And if it's really locked off, then the frame itself doesn't move. Characters enter and exit the frame, move around the frame, but the frame itself never moves. But even if it's not locked off, they're usually still on a tripod and they're panning and tilting, just kind of readjusting the frame or it's a dolly move or we're sliding across the office. But these are all very, very consistent, fluid, steady moves. And likewise, there's it's a fairly overall, it's a fairly low contrast film. So there's the brights aren't super, super bright and the darks, the shadows aren't super, super black. You can't, you know, make out the detail like it's 
pretty medium contrast uh, for the most part and brighter colors because it's a newsroom. Like normally whenever you think of journalism stories, hard hitting, you think of these back alley uh, reporters that are just getting the lowdown from some dude in the street, paying them off, getting, you know, it's all very shady, shady business, but that's not the case here. It's all very bright. Um, and the shots are all very non-dramatic. It's because everything's very measured. And I think it's replicating honest journalism. It's thorough. It's measured. It's not hiding anything. Interesting. You know, even whenever they're interviewing people, they constantly ask, can I take notes? Do you mind if I take notes? Like, there's nothing below board here. And I think they're doing everything they can to, to replicate that visually. And I also think maybe, this is me more postulating, of course, maybe it replicates the crime just a, just a little bit in the sense that it's openly known. The crimes within the church are openly known. It's deliberately handled. There's nothing subversive other than the way they outwardly face it. But within the church, everything is very oiled and machine-like. But diving into some specifics then, you mentioned that that interview between Mike and Patrick with Garabedian in the room. I had never noticed it. I'll say I've probably seen this movie between 10 and 15 times. What? Yeah. Are you kidding me? I watch it all the time. I Holy love shit. this movie. And maybe half of those times it's kind of been in the background. I'll look up and while I'm working on something, it's just something I, I just love this movie so much. It's just excellent. Uh, wow. But I never noticed some of these things. There's one shot and I'll call it out. It'll be super obvious. But this time watching it, I just suddenly started picking up all these other things. Like in this interview with Mike and Patrick, Mike's head is in, is composed very purposefully between these two stacks of books, like these two rows of books on either side of his head. In which scene? That interview where Mike is interviewing the first victim. Oh, yes. yes uh, with Garabedian. Gotcha. And he's and we've we framed him in between these two stacks of books. And I guess they're more, really more of a, like two rows. But there's this very huge gap. And this very huge head of Mark Ruffalo is occupying that space. And so Mike is studying what's going on here. He's trying to get the knowledge, but right now there's a gap in his knowledge. And I think they're visually representing that by placing his head in this gap of books, books representing knowledge and information. And what's really interesting to me is that the reverse angle of Patrick, his head is placed within a bookshelf. It's not just one row of books. There's like a whole like case of books that he is directly in the middle of. And it's like he's the victim and he's internalized all of this. He's living it. He has all the information. And what becomes really interesting as the scene plays out, the victim, Patrick, is suddenly placed at the ends of the shelf. He's getting it out. He's And specifically in these two back-to-back shots, he's framed on the left side of the bookshelf, this row of books. And then on the next shot, the next frame, he's on the right side. And it's like he's airing it and he's putting it all behind him. Hmm. He's progressed past this thing now that he's exposing all these lies and these secrets to Mike, a reporter who's going to air it. And then what's kind of cool, then after Patrick is done and he's leaving, Mike is now framed within the book stack. He has the knowledge now. Like that gap is suddenly behind him as well. It's to the left of our frame and his head is squarely in the middle of this row of books. He's got the information now. It's so subtle, and it's the kind of thing you don't necessarily have to do. <laughs> but it's all these – wow. I love to say every week, right? It's all these little slow 
subtle layers of, of visual information and themes and all these things. You're just constantly layering in. And I think it does add up to something more profound, even if you don't really feel it on the top of your head. Uh, likewise, I yeah, that. that's, that was, that's, that's deep. That one really is. I'll insert some frames if I can find a minute. I, I have a busy week, but if I can find a minute, I'll grab some, do some frame grabs and put it in the show notes at the pestlepodcast.com slash spotlight. And so we're intercutting between that and Sasha. She's interviewing Joe, who you can't help but just fall in love with. Yeah. That guy. <sighs> yeah. And it's one of the few shots that's on a Steadicam. She's walking up to the uh, coffee shop, and we're Steadicamming to the shop. And then even inside the shop, uh, the coffee house, we're walking up to Joe. That's still all on uh, Steadicam. And by the way, another Steadicam shot is when... Later on in the film, Matt goes down the street to yeah, see the yeah, house of the, the abusers. <sighs> every time I, or both times I saw it, I was like, what is he doing? He's, what is he doing? Oh, the house. That's right. And he just stares. Oh, so creepy. Oh, God. And so Sasha's interviewing Joe, and they start in the coffee shop and then go out to the park to get Joe's story, uh, you know, out in the open. Like he's airing the story, so they go out into the open. Uh, it's a very simple visual representation of what's happening in the scene. But what's really great about it is they also start building on another visual language that plays throughout the film, which is they end that scene in front of a church. Mm-hmm. And the church takes up almost the entire frame. Like it's huge. Yeah. And even the park and the, with the kids – and Joe and Sasha, they're all tiny and small down at the bottom of the frame. That's a very simple visual representation of what they're going up against, what it's like to go up against the church. You're small, they're large, and therefore powerful. The, you know, To quote Garabedian, the church thinks in centuries. Yes. That <laughs> oh, line, man, what a line blew me away. Yeah, me too. Just I, Yeah, it was almost hard to focus for like a couple minutes because I was like, oh my like, God. Yeah, I got to think about that. You're right. It's thousands of years old. Crazy. Yeah, it's insane. And so skipping a little bit forward, when Robbie, Robbie's wanting to take a a dive deeper into into the story, as all this information is starting to surface, he grabs Ben as Ben's about to leave the office. And they make this little comment about Marty Baron. Does that guy ever leave? And he's like, he's running our journalists into the ground. Um, And so they do this little walk and talk. Uh, with Marty in the background, Robbie and Ben are, are, are talking. And when Robbie says he wants to do a, a deeper dive, but he can't talk about it, it's interesting. They come to a stop, and Marty is framed in between them. He's way in the background, but he's ultimately driving this, even this conversation that he's not actually a part of. He's directing them both, and we can see this by how he's framed right in the middle of them. His presence is right there. Even though he's very, very small in the background, yeah, yeah. and that's kind of his coaching yeah. style. It's subtle. He's not aggressive. These that's I crazy. Don't know. <laughs> oh, I'm a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you are. By far, my favorite section is this dolly scene. This is what I was telling you last week off off the record was the scene that I really wanted to do this for. It's the most simple ish scene that I've just every time it comes on I just get glued and it's set up what I didn't notice up until this time was that it gets set up there's this big dolly in move and then a big dolly out move but these two scenes are separated by a bunch of other stuff that I'm not going to get into but we begin 
with Mike gets his first phone call with Sipe, with Richard Sipe, that the priest that they referenced in that opening clip that we played, mm. or the, the the hippie priest, the psychotherapist who's got all this information. All oh, right, yeah. And so Mike gets his phone call. And as he's talking with Mike, he's finding out the issue is bigger than he thought, but we don't know how much bigger. But I think Sype says something like, it's a psychiatric phenomenon. And while this phone call is happening, we start pretty wide and we just slowly push in into like a medium, medium close on Mike as he's having this phone call. Well, yada, yada, yada. And then this scene happens. I think if you really want to understand the crisis, you need to start with the celibacy requirement. That was my first major finding. Only 50% of the clergy are celibate. Now, most of them are having sex with other adults. But the fact remains that this creates a culture of secrecy that tolerates and even protects pedophiles. So you believe the church is aware of the extent of this uh, crisis? Oh, absolutely. Uh, After the first major scandal in Louisiana, Tom Doyle, the secretary canonist for the papal nuncio, co-authored a report Warning, pedophile priests were a billion-dollar liability. That was in 1985. 1985? That's right. Who saw that report? Anyone from the Catholic hierarchy? Uh, Sure. Doyle tried to introduce the report at the National Conference of Catholic Bishops. In fact, Cardinal Law initially helped to fund the report, but then he backed out and they shelved it. Uh, Are you kidding? Richard uh, Robbie here. We think we have uh, 13 priests in Boston that fit this pattern, which would be a very, very big story. Does that sound right to you uh, in terms of scale? No, not really, Robbie. Sounds low to me. My estimates suggest 6% act out sexually with minors. Uh, 6% of what? 6% of all priests. How, How many priests do we have in Boston? About 1,500, 1% is 15, 6% is 90. Wait, Nine, 90 priests. Is that possible? From a metric standpoint, yes. That would certainly be in line with my findings. Hello? Uh, music too, man. Yeah, the music. the music is amazing. It's like one theme. The yeah. whole time. It's just over and over and over and over and over and over yeah. and over again. And it works so well. It's beautiful. And I, I, I think just for a second, yeah. I think that that works really well because the entire time they have one focus, mm-hmm. Sing, a single focus to get this, this story done right. So whenever there's like a moment, there's the theme, you know, it's like, yeah, it comes back. Anyway, keep going. That's so good. That's so on, right on. And so at the start of the scene, we're actually on a close up of just the phone. Hmm. And we're just focused on Sipe's voice to make sure we understand exactly what's happening from a scene perspective. Like, yeah, we're on the phone. Everyone's gathered around it. But what's cool is we slowly dolly out as the scope and scale of the violence becomes clear. And what I love about this so much is that normally we dolly in on important dramatic moments. That's the whole Hitchcock theory of the more important something is, the larger in frame it is. But here, Tom McCarthy flips it on its head. He says, no, we're going to dolly out. And we're going to shrink away to see visually how much bigger the problem is than they thought. It's much bigger than they are. It's much bigger than they ever thought. We dolly out as their perspective shifts to see how much big the story is. We're getting an understanding of 
their understanding through this visual impact of, whoa, we are so far away from from the actual scale of this thing. And it's so simple. And it confused me the first time I noticed it. And I was like, wait, we're dollying out? This is a big, dramatic, you know, important point. Because they've been constantly been like, oh, yeah, there's there's four priests? There's thir- geez, 13. Are you sure, man? That number's too big. And then here we're finding out 90. Like, that's such a big thing. And that really left an impact on me just as another way to think about how to visually represent something that's going on in the story. And I that's really crazy. loved them for it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so driving a little bit forward, Mike and Garabedi and go to dinner. And this is super quick and easy. But what I love about this scene is Mitch Garabedian has a hard light on his face. Mike doesn't. And I think it's cool because Mitch is he's under the spotlight. He's under, you know, not only the, the trial itself, but he's got Mike in his face who's relentless and representing quote unquote spotlight, you know, the, the section of the newspaper. Uh, so it's just kind of the simple visual representation of what's happening within the scene itself. And I also, this one's kind of rough and let's have it. All right. So not long after that, maybe even next scene, uh, Mike is making dinner. He's on the phone. He's talking to the Sype again and Sype is kind of going back and forth. And he's saying, Hey, watch out. Watch out for these guys. You don't know what the Catholic Church is capable of. And while this conversation is taking place, Mike is making dinner. He's boiling hot dogs. And he has this lamp in the kitchen. And after he's done cooking these hot dogs, he places the cooked weenie right under the spotlight. And I think it's a symbolic. It's kind of crude and simple. But a symbolic of what he and his team are doing. They're cooking and plating these abusers under the spotlight. And it's so, so, I mean, it's very on the nose, right? They're weenies, literally. It's a very graphic and crude representation. But what I like about this scene, too, is that Ben immediately comes to the door right after uh, he gets, he, he drops the phone call mm-hmm. and then there's a knock on the door. It's like, Oh my God, could this be the, the church coming after him? Uh, they got yeah. to his phone and now they're out his door. Yeah. And then he opens it and it's Ben and he brought pizza. He never eats the dinner. Yeah. That's not ultimately, you know, his big concern. Like this relationship with his, with his teammates and he's not out to just get people for the sake of getting them. Yeah. He never actually feasts on it. Yeah. There's something. And that's, that's other than, if that's the the reasoning behind it, other sure. than that reasoning, there's no purpose to that Mm-mm. other than to bring Ben into the fold with the team almost because the whole time he's been like, you know, questioning this and like not real, not, not in their corner. He's always in their corner, but you know, how much resources do we need? How long does this need to take? Like, is this for real? You know? Yeah. I think that scene this? maybe has two other purposes, but, uh, you have site kind of introducing tension through the idea of the church could get you. Oh yeah. Right. And yeah, so yeah. there's that. Sure. But then there's the other thread that Mike picks up on, which was his frustration that no one's found this out before. And Ben tells him, he's like, Mike is asking Ben. He's like, Hey, uh, McLeish said that, you know, he, he sent these clips in, or maybe it was Saviano. They, they sent us in this, all this information. Do you know anything about that? And Ben gets a little defensive. He's like, man, I don't know. Like, Hey, spotlight needed to be on this. Yeah. This is nobody's fault. We need a spotlight on this. 
And Mike is like, yeah, I know. What the heck was that about? Yeah. Uh, but it's also what he repeats at the end of the film mm-hmm. when they're all gathered around and uh, Keaton's having that really difficult moment of owning that he dropped the ball. He himself. Yeah. Uh, it's brutal. And I didn't really get it the first time when uh, Rachel hands him the clipping of the 20 Same. priests. I, I just, it went over my head. I wasn't thinking. Because it was so subtle. Like, yeah. I think that's what's happening. But the way Keaton plays it off, he's like, anything else? And she goes away. She's like, no, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. And but it also goes right back to your teammate. Your your these guys are our family mm. because she doesn't bring it up again. Yeah, she's like, I did she my job. Go. Yeah, I brought it to his attention. Done. But you, he might have known that she knew. Yeah, maybe. But she also. But he knew she wasn't going to say anything. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's so cool. Uh, it's a really subtle, smart layer. God. But then this moment happens. We got law. This is it. No, this is law covering for one priest. There's another 90 out there. Yeah, and we'll, we'll print that story when we get it, but we, we got to go with this now. No, I'm not going to rush the story, Mike. But we don't have a choice, Robbie. If we don't rush to print, somebody else is going to find these letters no. and butcher the story. Joe Quimby from the Herald was at the freaking courthouse. Mike. What? Why, why are we hesitating? Barron told us to get law. This is law. Barron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that will put an end to this. Then let's take it up to Ben. Let him decide. We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time. It's time, Robbie. It's time. They knew and they let it happen to kids. Okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. We got to nail these scumbags. We got to show people that nobody could get away with this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. And I wish they'd left in, this is a clip off of YouTube, I wish they'd left in the, the next line because it's just Keaton saying, you finished? Mm-hmm. Like, they're all emotional about it, but they're all trying to keep their head. Yeah. They understand the importance of it. Yeah, <laughs> There's no way course. you don't. I mean, it's easy. I can only imagine, you know, like what it must have felt like to get, because uh, the first thing you get this all this information and you you feel like you're the only person in the world that knows it and you just want everyone to know what you know and you want them to know it now and sometimes like in this situation Keaton was right like no it, there's a bigger picture at play here we can't just go out with this because there's more we're just at the tip of the iceberg there's much more under the water here and and I mean it's a good thing that they that they didn't yeah you know yeah they did it right. right what i love about the scene too is that we frame tighter on mike but we're still steady the camera move yeah, yeah. you know is still very locked off it's very composed even as mike loses his cool and the tight close-up framing really pops out after spending so much time in mediums and wides the close-up also really helps mike's reaction explode and emotionally resonate because we're so much closer to his emotions visually than normal, giving the moment that much more power Mm -hmm. because even as we're steady, we're composed and Mike is losing his cool. The steadiness of the camera kind of enunciates or articulates the emotion coming out of Mike, you know, even getting away from the fact that we can just visually read his emotions on his face so much clearer, just the movement as he's, you know, being animated 
a little movement on a close-up goes a mile because yeah. you don't have to do anything. The closer the camera is to your face, the less you have to do. Less you should do. The less you should do, for sure. Right. And in this case, I mean, we're close, but we're not super, super close. And so he can still move around and, you know, get frustrated. And it's explosive, like just seeing his head move around in this steady locked-off frame. We're closer. And so you feel it so much more for all those reasons and by the contrast of not as many close-ups throughout the film. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you feel the importance and the emotion. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yes, it is. God. I love – there's – I don't know how many handheld shots there are in this, but the one that I picked out was when Robbie – finally gets confirmation of his list from Jim, his buddy, that the lawyer mm. that works for the, the church. Yeah. And it's Christmas time, and that's like this handheld shot that's suddenly happening. And it feels almost uh, surreal, I guess, in a sense, because this is it. This is the moment we finally have the system. We have someone from them confirming it. Yeah. And now it's real. It's not planned. We didn't know we were going to get this. Uh, so it just feels a little bit more immediate. And it stands apart, you know, as an emotional moment on its own, even though there's no emotion in the scene, we're kind of injecting it through the camera movement. Like this is an important thing and Oh my God, this is happening. And it's all kind of being communicated through just being handheld when we really haven't been up to this point. Yeah. I also love going back to the enormity of the church. We can't stand up to it, but what's cool is at the very end when the papers are finally going out, we see the papers being pressed and they're loaded on the trucks and the trucks are going out of a very big building. The press is big too. They yeah. loom large when they're ready. Yeah. Up until that point, they weren't ready. But when they were, they land a freaking haymaker. Man. Yeah. Interesting. I love That's that. Awesome. Cause That's I forget, you forget it throughout the film. You just feel how immense the church is. Yeah. Until this moment. It's like, no, they're not the only They're, one. <laughs> yeah. They have some power too. They've yeah. been around a while too. Yeah. And there's going back to the low contrast and the bright colors until they find the books in the basement. Everything is pretty bright and low contrast. And suddenly we get into the basement whenever they discover, you know, that whatever the almanacs or whatever the, the directories of the church. Now it's dark and it's more contrasty because this is where, uh, this is where the Catholic church lives. It's mm-hmm. a, in a dark, old, dusty basement. This is where their secrets really are. There's a dead rat in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. Oh, I didn't even think about that, man. <laughs> That's so on the nose. Yeah. That, that, now that you said that, it yeah. made me think of that. Yeah, there's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And then later in the film, when Robbie meets Pete in the bar, that popped out to me, too, as kind of this dark, poorly lit room. Uh, because that's also where, where Pete, uh, one of Robbie's old buddies, is trying to ask him to bury it. And he's like, hey, yeah, don't do this. And that's where Robbie's like, oh, is this where it happens? Mm-hmm. Where you asked me to look the other way? Man, yeah. Robbie's yes. a cold-blooded killer. Brutal. <laughs> Uh, diving in just a little bit, switching lanes here. Uh, the story. This is. I started having these thoughts, and I just couldn't really finish fleshing them out. But what makes journalism stories so compelling? And the, some of the early thoughts that I had uh, before I got interrupted with like phone calls and emails and stuff is it's a mystery. It's a detective story, but it's told through news journalists. You know, they're after. They're trying to solve a puzzle. And they even introduce us to the the first piece of the puzzle in the opening scene, right? Uh, it opens on the crime whenever 
the priest is arrested and we, we open up on a police department and this priest is getting discharged without a crime and drives away from the cops scot-free. And you see that rookie. Once again, we have a new, new guy on the force and he's getting the lowdown and he's like, what are they going to, what are we going to do for the arraignment? And the, the senior veteran cop looks at him. And he's like, what arraignment? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, That's not happening here. Do you know what's going on? Yeah. And so we have this crime and what's interesting about news journalists is their tools are different from a detective or a cop on the beat. They they can't use violence, uh, but they can threaten with exposure, right? Whenever they're talking to McLeish, they're like, yep. uh, Robbie tells them, we got two stories here. One of That's priests perfect. abusing kids. Oh, my God. And another one. one of, of helping them. Yeah. What do you want? Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to roll? And so you have to use your wits and also your integrity, hopefully. And it's it's attention to detail. And it's, you know, they're watching you like Sasha is watching you. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was as far as I could get before I just got rushed into grabbing my notes earlier today. <laughs> uh, but there is something so compelling. There's a structure to it that I really want to master and, and discover, at least. Uh, because whether you're talking about, you know, courtroom dramas detective stories and noir thrillers or something like this, a a compelling journalism story. There's something structurally to it that I think is really interesting as the story is unfolding and you're learning more and more and you're, you're asking the questions that they're asking and they're giving you answers that are only asking more questions. So there's this kind of structure to it that, that I find really interesting and it's, it's compelling on its own for sure. Yeah. But I can't get enough of these things. (laughs) It's so much fun, man. I, I also love, we, we touched on this a little bit, they wow us with the scale. Like, uh, yeah. in this case, right, they show us surprise by four priests than 13 priests being abusers. And it's easier to be surprised by 90 if we start off the surprise by, like, one. Like, yeah. show us what's surprising through the character's eyes. And that way we can be really shocked by the magnitude of it later on. And it also shocks us on a final note. What I what I think is really smart by that whole scale, the way it keeps scaling up, is then it leaves us shocked on that very last note in the credits when they start listing all the cities at the end. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh my god, it's even bigger than they thought it was. Yeah. At the end of it, like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it makes us want to understand the enormity of what's happening so much more. I thought it was interesting the way that throughout the film, priests. And the church kept being very tightly correlated with God, not on this you know general sense that yeah it's a religion therefore they discuss God, but they keep very much emphasizing we consider the priest like where God is coming to your house. Yes. Oh, they say that at least twice, if not three yeah. times. Yeah. Constantly, and so priests are effectively God. And mm-hmm. for me, I find it interesting as an agnostic, and I swear I'm going to reel this back in a very. To every one of you no, that's religious, don't. Uh, I will reel it back at the very end of the episode, so don't just hang up the phone yet. But for me as an agnostic, like I think it's absolutely correct. If there's no actual living God, like in reality, if there's no God, then the only real God is the people who perpetuate them. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the church, and that's going to be the priest. And they're going to be the people that are forcing you know, this, this deity and these rules onto us. Um, and I've Found that I don't know that they were necessarily going for that in the film, but that's kind of what struck me. But 
I love that spotlight from a journalism story again is approaching the story from every single angle. They're not leaving any stone unturned. And I, that's what makes us such a great ensemble cast is everyone is playing a very important part because they're going through the courts. They're going through the lawyers. They're going through the victims, the priests, the church, the school, the friends. They're not leaving anything to chance. They want to discover everything. And every single one of those pieces pays dividends, right? They get all the, the court to overturn their documents. The lawyers um, end up McLeish, right, gives him a list of whatever 40, 50 of his uh, mm-hmm. victims and, or the, uh, the accused and settled victimizers. And the victims themselves obviously contribute and corroborate all, all of these facts. The church finally uh, gives in to uh, the lawyer, the church lawyer. You know, he gives them information. They get the school. I don't know if the school ever pays out, but the their friends obviously do. And so all of these places, you know, that you can see them trying to get to the story. It's not like we're, we're waiting on one person to really come through for us. They're like, no. Well, we're waiting on that. We're going to go through this. And you can just feel the pressure that they're placing on everybody. And the, um, I don't know, the, the hunger to get it right, to your point earlier, like they want to make sure they don't screw this up. And so they're not just going to say, yeah, we're good. And that's what good journalism should be. It's not saying, oh, I got one story from one person. Therefore, I have all the facts. It's no, we're going to corroborate. We're going to check every single thing that makes sense to check. Like every one of those books where that uh, uh, showing all the, all the priests and where they were moved, quote unquote, you know, yeah, and they sick were, leave and whatever. And they were even fact checking that within themselves. Right, right. Like I got this year, you got next year. Mm-hmm. Did my names pop up on your list too? Right, circling and then yeah. uh, spreadsheets. spreadsheets. And where, yes. You know what's so funny? <laughs> It was so funny was that while they're circling, I'm like, okay, what would I do? Yeah, I would I would circle or highlight or something, and then I would definitely put it in a spreadsheet and do a pivot table. You know what I'm saying? Like, like absolutely. I love spreadsheets and pivot tables. I, we both do. We both very much do. We're nerds. No. Oh, and the other thing that I think journalism stories have going for them, and this certainly goes for every story, but in their case, uh, interesting characters because you – you generally have a journalist who's going to be kind of the straight man, so to speak. Like they're kind of even killed or uh, they're, they're sponges and they're trying to soak up everything. And through the course of investigating your story, you run into some crazy characters. Like <laughs> there's this scene. This is very, very short. But I love, love this because this is so Boston and it's so much. This is still at the beginning. We're introducing ourselves to, to the atmosphere. Hey, Steve. Mike. Hey. Crappy game last night, huh? Yeah, it can't hit worth a nickel. Hey, listen, what's, um, what's Elaine McNamara doing in the 1030? Do you need something, Mike? No, just curious. Go be curious somewhere else. I got work to do, huh? Okay, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Go be curious somewhere. And he doesn't even take a visit. Okay, where Steve. was that? Which, which, what was that? That was like... Not even 10 minutes in, it's when they're having that very first editor's meeting with, I don't know who Ellie McNamara yeah. is. Maybe it's the owner of the Globe or something. Oh, um, right. Okay. But they're in that first meeting. He's introducing himself to everybody. And Mike is trying to figure out, hey, what's going on over here? What's up? Yeah. And this guy is like, hey, bro, 
take it somewhere yeah, else. Yeah, get out of here. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't fight it at all. No. So and he's good. so blunt. I love that. Yeah. And it plays right into whenever we start meeting Gary Beatty, and he's a big, big character in this film. And so they really build him up at, before we even get to know him. Mike goes in and he he gets the what is it Sasha's like hey yeah this guy's a bit of a character and Mike is like I I like characters <laughs> yeah and so next thing he's basically sitting in the waiting room to meet this guy and we can hear him yelling off screen in his office while Mike waits <laughs> and then we cut back and they're having a conversation about this guy and someone says yeah he seems a bit reckless because of the way he's going after this case and this guy. Whoever they're talking to is like, have you met Mitch Garabedian? And then we cut back to Mike hearing yelling again. (laughs) And we finally get to meet him, and he's standoffish. He's skittish. He's in a room stuffed to the brim with paperwork, and his hair is kind of all over the place. And it's giving us this really quirky presentation of this really important figure. And it's so good because it makes us guess, second guess, his credibility just like they are. Yeah. And so we have this crazy visual because they frame him so weirdly with all this, like literally there's stacks of paper all around him and it's making us say like like, trapped in it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, can we trust this guy? So as the film goes on and you're still kind of getting this feeling like, yeah, maybe he's telling the truth, but he's still a little off. And then he, he addresses it point blank right before he reveals what's the other half, you know, as Mike asked him and he, goes into this long-winded story about how there's papal papers that are available to the public right now if the church would give it to them. But they're not there. They're not there. And that's when he tells them, he's like, I'm not crazy. I'm experienced. <laughs> yeah. Let's end that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah. So, I mean, that pretty much ties up everything I got. That only took you like sure? seven hours. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought I think it was all worth it, man. Uh, those are all like really brilliant um, ways to come at it. I mean, what whatever what, what I would suggest if someone has disobeyed us and listened to this before they've yeah. seen the movie is to really pay attention to the to the names of the people when you watch it because you will get so much more out of it. And and I mean, this is you know whether you're religious or not, this is a this is a story that that has to be told. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's, and I'm so glad they made a movie about it because I remember when all this came out and it was, it was very like for, for people that have been in the church their whole lives and, and, and that's what, you know, you, you live for essentially. I mean, it's earth shattering. And what do you do about that when that is taken out from you? Like one of the, what was the line? One of the guys said that, Oh, I think it might have been, it might have been that scene where Ruffalo goes to Rachel's house and he said, he said like that he just he felt like it was something was taken away from him because he was gonna, he thought maybe one day he'd go back to church. Yeah. And now that's taken away from him, and he wasn't even abused. So can you only imagine what the the guy was that Rachel was interviewing, mm-hmm. what he went through? You know, not only did he know he was gay and a man was coming on to him, but God was abusing him. Like, what do you say when you're your kid? Like, this is something that had to be told. And I'm so glad it was told in a, de- it's like a delicate yet on the nose way because it wasn't, it also wasn't attacking religion. So, cause like, okay, yeah. let's get that straight. Mm-hmm. You know, like it wasn't saying that religion is bad. It wasn't even saying 
Catholicism and specifically is bad. It was saying these people that are hiding this, that run this show, these people do not, they're not God and they are just people and they don't deserve what you're, the accolades and the pillars that you're putting them on and need to be exposed. Now, I mean, is that one of the reasons why I'm not Catholic anymore? A hundred percent. Absolutely. But the purpose of the movie also, maybe in, in parallel to the purpose of what Spotlight was trying to do with the story is to tell the bigger picture, yeah. not to say religion is bad, to, to say here is a massive denigration of something that should be beautiful and a destruction of that. And that's what we want to tell the story of. That's, I, th- I think that's spot on because, yeah. yeah, you're looking at Sasha going to church with her, her grandmother and... Mm-hmm. Then of course the phones at the end of the film start ringing off the hook yep. with stories, yep. and you you're absolutely right. You are taking something away from people whenever you refuse to hold people accountable who have power and have been given power over other people, and they're found out to not deal with that properly mm. is it is spiritual abuse, as Saviano says, and it deserves for sure to be to be aired out and people to be made whole again because at the end of the day i don't know if it's a verse or not but you know this is definitely not a verse i'm switching what i was about to say like sunshine is the best disinfectant and that's probably literally true verse three (laughs) but it is it's you know if you want people to be healed you know uh biblically speaking anyway you do want to confess your sins and at the end of the day maybe the most importantly whenever they're equating the priest with god it's to say that they are not God. They are not, you know, carrying out what the Bible says to do, uh, which is to be good to one another, of course, and, and a bunch of other, you know, yeah. very good things and some, you know, not as good things, according to me. But and me. yeah. And so it's important to knock them down a peg. It doesn't matter to me. Honestly, it doesn't even matter if you've abused people or not. You're still not God. Yeah. You still don't deserve the same respect that God, you know, in a religion deserves. Yeah. And you should be humanized. And it's a good reminder to to say that it's okay to be fallible. You're not supposed to be perfect anyway. Uh, so stop pretending you are. <laughs> so one one thing about it that the, the one scene that I I don't question, I think it's an amazing moment, but I I just I wonder why they never went back to him uh at least in the movie was the scene where Rachel meets the knocks in the priest's door who admits that he did that. Yes, mm-hmm. but I didn't get any pleasure out of it. And her Crazy. reaction was like, what the fuck is happening right now? Yeah. Um, but they never go back to him in the movie. And, and so that makes me, I feel like think, he was, is, was he not on the front page of the, the, the story at the end? I'm not, oh, I don't know. I'm not very to, good with. You're the one that's seen it 15 yeah, times. That's true. You, you tell me. Uh, <laughs> it looks I mean, like him to me, but I have no earthly idea. Maybe, but you know, I'm I'm trying to think of what. Okay, other than the shock and awe factor of having that moment, what was the purpose of that? And could it possibly be because I, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here thinking these these priests that did this, that did these horrible things, they. They did them for years, years. It's not like, and maybe some did, but I'm not going to assume that they did, did it once and felt bad and stopped. 
right? So these are, these are people that either knew it was wrong and kept doing it or didn't even know it was wrong, right? Oof. Right. And, and so I'm it's like, this priest didn't think he was wrong because he wasn't getting any pleasure out of it, which is total bullshit, by the way, I would say. Yeah. Uh, why would you do something like that? Yeah, it, that's ridiculous. And I can only imagine what what would, would go through some uh, a priest's head when he's thinking of doing something like this and doing it. Uh, multiple times. I mean, do you get numb after a few times, and so you just forget why initially you started doing it in the first place, or yeah, or are you just numb from the beginning? I don't know. Maybe that scene had something to do with you know trying to I don't know call that to light because because there's still yeah. I mean I think that point in the film comes still fairly early on, so they're still figuring out oh, yeah, how much truth is there to this. They're uh, knocking on doors and stuff. Yeah, like that. I'm not. Maybe it's like halfway through the movie or something. Okay. Yeah, but that is a crazy moment. It was, right? And so I thought, oh, they're totally coming back this way. And there's one point where um, Keaton, Robin, Robbie said, tells uh, her, Sasha, to go back and talk to him. Mm. But you never see her do it. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. So he's definitely a part of it throughout the whole thing. And so maybe, yeah, then maybe that is his his image on the, on the paper. But that was just an, a really... I, it, Maybe that's the purpose of it is to make me think of like, what the hell are they, you know, how do you do that as someone who says that God is, you know, good and protector of children, you know, like Mm -hmm. I just don't, it's always blown my mind, especially as someone who's, I mean, I've been around priests my entire young life. I was around priests from when I, I, how was it? I think it was in fifth grade, fifth grade when I started being an altar, maybe actually younger how old was I? I might've been eight when I started. I mean, I did it for a long time and I never, you know, there was never even a moment, but I did go to high school where I went to high school. I went to Catholic high school. My principal was arrested. My Spanish and theology teacher was arrested. Whoa. uh, And my world religions teacher was arrested. He's, he's there. The last two are still in prison. I know. Yeah, for that exact thing. And two of them are priests. So I've been around it and I've felt it, you know, yeah. but I, I haven't, it hasn't ever like actually happened to me, That's thankfully. Amazing. But it just, but I also it appreciate makes me angry. your perspective earlier. You were asking like really hard questions that people don't want to ask. They don't want to ask about motives and reasoning and the psychology behind it. Mm. Those are really important questions to ask and you can ask them without like justifying or obviously saying that it's ever okay. I think that's an implied understood thing, but at the same time, sometimes you do need to ask questions if you want a thing to get better. Yeah. And just because, you know, it's one of the most horrible things that a human being can ever do to another one. Like it doesn't mean that, you shouldn't, you know, explore it and understand it in order to help, you know, prevent it in the future. And so that takes a little bit of a, yeah, I I wonder what it's, I wonder why I feel this way. I'm going to say this and I, I don't know that I mean it when I say it, but I'm just going to say it. Like it's one of those things where you have it in your head and you say Mm -hmm. it out loud. I feel like if someone commits murder, they can be rehabilitated. But if someone does something like this, 
I don't know that there's rehabilitation for something like this. I feel like, and I'm not saying that they won't feel guilt or sorrow. That can happen with for anyone, yeah, including this. But does that? It's such a carnal urge that's built into. Like I, I just don't know that that actual urge could ever go away, right? I mean, that's interesting because that, yeah, that's part of your. You Your know, if I get mad desire, at you, right. right. Like if I get mad at you and there's like a moment of rage and I hit you over the head with something and you die. Yeah. Right. Um, I was angry and I wanted, to, I really wanted to hurt you. I may have even wanted to kill you in that moment, but that moment goes away. You're not, I'm not like constantly wanting to kill people. Right. Right. Yeah. But this is a little different. You feel like it's a base desire. Yes. And it's something that's like probably brooded. You've brooded in for a long time before you actually acted on it. And I mean, if these, if these priests were really, you know, sexually driven and had sex with like other adults, that's different. Right. That like that you totally understand. And it's like, we've, we've been, we've been calling, you know, like in, in at least Catholic circles, there's a lot of people that have been calling to allow priests to marry for a long time, mm-hmm. right? Because that, you're, you can't take that urge away. Like yeah. it's a sexual urge. It's natural. Yeah. But the urge for to have that with children is a totally different thing. Yeah. So I just don't – and I've asked this question a lot because my, my world religion teacher who went to prison for this, this and which I kind of – felt a little bit might've been a thing, but I, you know, didn't know. And so when I heard, I was just blown away and my dad goes to visit him in prison. Yeah. Has been there maybe three times and, you know, has asked him like really hard questions and hasn't really gotten any answers. So I have a, I mean, of I know we're getting variety. a little topic. Yeah, so. a little bit. We'll we'll wrap it up here in a couple minutes, but you can edit it out. Yeah, the one. <laughs> but I yeah, I have a wide range of feelings about this this whole topic. For one, I definitely pity like those priests. Like this is this what it 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 took for you to feel, you know, satisfied or good about yourself as hurting little children? Like obviously there's anger and there's disgust, but there's also pity like what a little person you are. And then the thing that really gets me, I have a uh, an old friend, um, and I use the old very emphatically, that was found out to have abused, you know, his, I don't know, niece, I think it was. And he got caught, went to jail. And it was also said that he was also accused of it by, you know, some other kid at one point before that. And he still emphatically denies that. And I'm like, no. That's there's no way that he was guilty of one but not the other. That's absurd. But the thing that I could maybe you know forgive someone like that. That's fine. That's possible. Like forgiveness is is a thing mostly for yourself, right? To release you know the feelings and resentment and anger with with other people. But what bothered me, the reason why this guy can never be my friend again and uh and to some degree i hate him you know very wholeheartedly even after saying you know something as soft as pity you know comes out of me because i still pity him but what the thing that bothers me and makes me utterly disgusted beyond words with this person is he knew he did it and he 
he tried to cover it up. He tried to lie. And if he had actually cared about that child, he would have said so. He would have said, yes, this, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. Let's get this kid help. Whatever happens to me happens to me. I, I will deal with my consequences. But what I really care about is making sure this is a half, healthy, happy child. And he didn't. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, he was still a selfish asshole, yeah. and he was looking out for himself. Yeah. And I've got plenty of friends who still care about this guy. They write him. They go visit him. And I, I gave this guy a job at one point. Like, I was really good friends with this guy. And not on your life. Not on your life. Uh, because there's other people out there who have never touched a child and they recognize these urges in themselves. Exactly. And they Thank try you. to come forward for help and they get destroyed by society. And I'm, I'm not one of those people. Thank God for people like you. Yeah. Because yeah. you're actively trying to not hurt people. It's not your, it, let's, yes. I'm so glad you said that. It is not, it is not your fault if you feel these ways there's plenty of times i'm driving and i just really want to swing into the opposite lane not to hurt myself but to hurt somebody else right or whatever Mm -hmm. like you have these crazy thoughts that just pop in your head and sometimes they hang and sometimes they leave and they're just like flashes but they happen to everybody and something like this for someone to recognize this and actually go out and and try to get better before anything bad happens like that's I mean, the That's balls courage, that someone man. has to have, it, thank you, is just unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, but you don't even you don't hear about those people. You don't. You know. And you know? there was a TED talk of a woman that was just trying to talk about it. Not even like she wasn't a person herself. She just wanted to discuss the topic, and she got death threats. Wow. And they, she asked them to take the video down. So society is just. It's a one note society. We can't, you know, the mark of, you know, an intellectual person or an intelligent person is the ability to hold two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time. And we as a society are maybe not completely capable of that at this point. No, I mean, because no one wants to, a a lot of those people don't get introspective and put their, or are empathetic Mm -hmm. of other people, at least on topics like this, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. it just, it's much easier to be angry and outraged and mm-hmm. say things like I would rather the death penalty be the case or whatever. Um, so yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Uh, you're done. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, that's a huge point now. Yeah. Hopefully uh, we still have listeners at this point. <laughs> well, you know how uh, it's just, this is an important topic, and yeah. and the only reason we're talking about this is because of the film. Mm-hmm. So, we we maybe we edit some out, and that's just for length. But um, I I don't mind talking about this at all. Same. I I think it needs to be done. I think we both agree that yeah. it needs to be done, and needs to be done more because I personally don't know what's happened since. Yeah. I don't Same. know. Uh, like, like maybe that's there's recent stuff too, in the news. You know, who knows? There's there's recent uh, revelations in the news right now. I think it's about Philadelphia. Maybe uh, I haven't been reading it, but I filmed a short film with a bunch of Catholic people recently, and they were all about you know discussing this and and it's good because at the end of the day, well, we'll get to it in a second. There's one more comment I'll make about it. It'll come attached with the quote of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's my dial back that I was referencing earlier. Um, that said, what's your reco for the week? Oh, we're already, okay. Yeah, we're yeah, just yeah. going to jump right <laughs> yeah. to it. Okay. Uh, oh man, I had it. Okay, here we go. I'm going to stick with the Mike, Michael Keaton theme mm. because that man, all of a sudden, like not all of a sudden, I guess since Birdman has right. like 
really just crushing it, crush everything. I'm going to recommend founder. Yeah, I knew it. Did you know it? Look at, look at, I look at in the show notes at the bottom. Oh, what? Did you already type it? Uh, yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Why did you, how did you know that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, wait, how did you know that? You're welcome. Well, 30 seconds ago, you was like, I'm going to stick with Keaton. I was like, Oh, this is what he's doing. Yeah. But I could have said Birdman. That's true. That's true. But I knew you were going to say founder. I don't know. He went, oh, God. <laughs> but it's amazing. He was in back to back best picture winners. Oh yeah. Birdman and, and spotlight. and spotlight. God. Yeah. Well anyway, founders it's on Netflix so you can stream at any time, but it's about kind of, he's not the, just watch it. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's really good. Nice. I went through like all kinds of questions cause there's so many good journalist movies and things that I want to recommend. I, I thought maybe first Frost Nixon, but I'm like, oh, everybody's seen Frost Nixon probably. Then I thought, oh, Rich McAdams, uh, maybe Morning Glory is one of my little guilty pleasures because she's a journalist, a news anchor in that, and it's more bubbly and lighthearted. Then I was like, oh, but what about The Intercept with Glenn Greenwald? He's my favorite journalist. People should absolutely be reading him. But then finally realized, no, 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 no. I'm going to recommend another podcast, and it's called In the Dark. And it's some of the best journalism ever, specifically for podcasts. There's like been incredible journalism and like real world stuff, but she does just the most amazing podcast on true crime. So if you're a fan of true crime, not like actual crime, you're going to love this podcast. Oh, that was the best. That's a sound. I wish we had sound bites. We can go back yeah. I cut things out. Uh, so if you're a fan of true crime, <laughs> Madeline Barron is, I, w- I really hope to interview her someday for this show. Maybe we can do a, a pestle episode about her podcast because I think she just, if you, there's two seasons, they're both two different cases. You listen to the first season. You're going to be like, man, why are they even going to do a second season? And mm-hmm. then you get to the end of the second season. You're like, Oh my God, that first season was crap. (laughs) It's so good. And you hear some of the links they go to, to get the story and to get the facts. Oh man, I can't wait. So is it kind of like a, like the, it's like serial life. Oh, serial. Yeah. Yeah. I'd put it much more closely with serial, which that first season of serial is still the best ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're about to release like in the next week, season three. Is there any update with, with, no, uh, not with Adnan. Adnan? Uh, okay. Yeah. That's, okay. That, well, I can't wait for season three. Yeah. Anyway, same here. Right. Um, Just totally off topic. Yeah. So. I keep pulling us off. Crap. Uh, we haven't really decided <laughs> what we're doing next week. Did you have, did you want to do Hidden Figures or did you want to do Lion or something else? Let's do Hidden Figures. Okay. So. Maybe go watch Hidden Figures and you'll get our <laughs> take next week on it. <laughs> oh, don't forget. We're to... excited about yeah, next week. Absolutely. Do Hidden Figures. This is going to well, be. Well, because it was, it was critically acclaimed, right? Yeah. I think it was a Best Picture nominee, maybe. Was it really? I think so. Okay, cool. I mean, you know, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, subscribe, review us on iTunes, leave us a note saying what you would like us to talk about next and the kinds of things you find interesting. Like if there's something we talk about on the show that you really love or hate or hate, let us know. Maybe you're like, Wes needs to shut the hell up more Todd, um, uh, which I'm a fan of. Yeah. I, mean, I keep leaving that note and you don't pay attention to me, but it's fine. Whatever. Jerk. Mm. And you can do all that. If you want to discuss this episode specifically, you can go to the pestle slash spotlight. 
I know it's a very sensitive topic, but please be respectful. Uh, we, we know there's a lot of passion surrounding this, and uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, let's try to keep it very, very polite conversation, yeah. if possible. Yeah. Uh, so we'll leave you with the quote of the day, and this one is a quote by Jesus, the man the himself. Man. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? Yeah. So the reason I really love that quote for this film, obviously it's religious, but what I also love is there were, like the lawyer had a crisis of conscience. He came forward at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day too, like he helped him out at the end, but he was like, where have y'all been? I tried to tell y'all this mm-hmm. and it shouldn't take someone beating down your door before you confess to something that's really screwed up. It should be something that you know, you want to sleep at night. You want to feel like a good person. And I just don't understand why people don't hold people in power accountable, whether it's a priest, whether it's your boss, whether it's, you know, yourself. If you have a position of power, what good is it to just blindly follow these people? I love so much that these people working in the newspaper understood the reality and the uh, the gravity of what they were working on because they were a part of that community. They were all church-going members. They grew up with it. They respected it. And even, you know, like Mike and Sasha, it was still a part of their lives, even if it wasn't, you know, super present at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it at the end of the day, they're like, what does it matter if it's still going to cost me, you know, my integrity? And so I have a great deal of respect uh, for people that can – hold people that they respect accountable mm-hmm. even when it hurts. Yeah. Uh, I, this is a, you know, one of the, the good moments of the Bible for sure. And I, I, I think that more people should live this way. Just like you said that uh-huh. it, for me with the big stuff, it's easy because you look at it and you, or at least the, the way that my brain works is I look at it and I say, that is not worth what it will cost right? Whatever it is, you just, just constantly ask yourself that question is what you're going to do or say worth the cost of what, of the result. And if it is worth it, then do it. Maybe if not, then don't. But the the thing is, is that it's, it's really the smaller things that are tougher for, I think people in general, you know, we there's have, another verse that may even speak to what you're talking about. That's Luke 16.10, look, I'm not a Christian anymore, but there's still so much that I've taken from the Bible that I still use in my everyday life. And that's kind of the real back that I was talking about. Mm. Like there's still so much of Christianity that's a part of my my worldview and the way I treat people. And I think Luke 16.10 is such a massive one. There's another quote that I usually reference more, but this one is still the, the heart and soul of it, which is, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. It's like it's the little things. Yeah, that absolutely. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's the, the people that I respect are the people that I know I need to turn myself in for I'm stealing this, this toy. Yeah. But I, you know, you know, do I do it? I could just go take it back and put it on the shelf. You know, no one would ever know. Or do I turn myself in because I did, you know, I, I did something wrong. The people that actually turn themselves in and say, I did this, you know, this little thing that could cost them a lot. Yeah. 
you know, but they did this little thing. Those are the people that I really respect. Yeah. Not these sons of bitches who do something like this, even if they come forward and admit. I have no mm-hmm. amount of of forgiveness for those types of people. Okay. I just don't have, I can't, I can't, I physically cannot do it. I mean, I grew up in a world where forgiveness was, you always forgave. And I think that that's bullshit. No, I don't. I don't forgive any of these people. And I hope that the the people that the survivors don't either, because these people don't deserve it. I mean, if they do for themselves, fine, but never tell them that you yeah. do. Like that's anyway. Sorry, I got on a soapbox again. Love it. It's no. a, it's, it's such an easy soapbox to get. Over, it really man. is. So it's pretty low hanging. Apologize fruit. to our listeners for of... for the length. You know. Yeah. Really. Yeah. No, it's pretty low hanging moral high ground <laughs> you would think yeah, you would you would think you would but think. they made a movie out of it that's a good point <laughs> oh, oh speaking of movies guys i'm todd i'm wes go watch some movies